Welcome to Trader Chats, everyone. I'm Imran Larka from Options Insight. And today, my guest is Tian Yang, who runs an institutional macro research boutique called Variant Perception. Hey, Tian. Welcome to the show. Hey, Imran. How's it going? Good, good. Nice to see you, man. Um, so why don't you tell everyone a little bit about your kind of career background, how you started in the industry, and how you ended up at VP? Uh, yeah, so... You know, I started my career interning for you, right? That's the uh, that's the bombshell to, to drop at the beginning. Um, you know, I, I I think it was still Merrill Lynch at the time. You hadn't been uh, taken over by Bank of America yet. Yeah, um, I remember. You know, I remember you as a a very passionate uh, teacher even then. Uh, you know, I definitely learned a lot from you, but I think that passion also uh, wore out some of the other interns a little yeah. bit on the, on the trading floor. So. Uh, yeah, that, that was how I got started, you know, looking at equity derivatives. And um, and yeah, so over time, I think that, that was a really interesting time to be involved on the sell side um, in, in terms of market making. But I think over time, you know, I think my natural instinct was more drawn to kind of a slower moving pace, getting time to think and do more kind of a deeper kind of research. So, you know, as a result of that kind of spent four years uh a Merrill Lynch or Bank of America Merrill Lynch, and then uh, came to VP to work for the founder um, at the time, which was um, Jonathan uh, Tapper. And obviously, over time, kind of you know, the VP's gone for a few iterations, and um, you know, I took over uh, just over two years ago. So you know, t t today's version is kind of still research, uh, but obviously, there's more of a kind of model data angle as well that obviously we'll get into. Uh, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Looking forward to it, and. Uh... Yeah, on that note, when you, I think you're right. I think a few of the interns used to get a bit scared. I was quite intense back then at the time, but that's where you had to be, man. When you're trading liquid products, you know, you've got to be that way. So uh, it's good. Uh, but it's good. Yeah. So it's good that you found your way onto something that more suited your personality on the research side. Um, so why don't you tell us a bit more then about what you guys do at Variant Perception and kind of the, the kind of framework that you've built there and, and how you like to look at things? Uh, yeah, so I think we're essentially trying to sit in the niche between um, kind of data science and, and market history. So if you think about it, a lot of times, if you're a purely discretionary trader, essentially what you have is kind of your accumulated experiences, your, you know, your experience of previous cycles, but it's going to be subject to certain biases, right? It's almost inevitable in terms of, you know, how, how the human brain works. Um, but at the same time, if you go for a pure kind of machine learning approach, um, then the tendency is that these systems backtest really well in sample, but out of sample, they're unable to pick up on kind of shifts in correlation or big regime shifts. So, mm -hmm. you know, arguably that's why a lot of the pure machine, machine learning funds maybe haven't done as well as, um, anticipated once they launch. So in theory, if you can do a bit of both, it kind of makes up for the shortcomings of the other and you end up with a slightly more holistic um, approach, right? So an understanding of market history and cycles um, will help you in terms of specifying your models or putting certain restrictions on it or understand kind of when the model's kind of getting a bit out of whack. Um, but equally, I think, you know, in terms of where the world is going, it's almost inevitable you need a, a kind of data science angle, I think, to keep up in terms of understanding uh, the analytics and, and just dealing with the kind of the vast amount of data out there. So that's kind of, you know, how we think of ourselves a little bit, you know, with, with first of all students in market history, you know, we spend a lot of time just reading financial history books, 
right? Reading kind of write-ups on different industry cycles and and those kind of things. But then hopefully that gives you a good foundation to then try and start building models and bringing some of the uh, the more leading edge techniques. Mm, so a lot of, I guess a lot of your clients are like some of the top hedge funds and that, that use your models to kind of help give them that edge. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So I, I guess, um, you know, the, the, the client ranges from, uh, you know, people who just want to read the research and just get a bit of what we're thinking through to uh, obviously data, data APIs, you know, inputting the uh, the kind of data into their processes. So there's probably a, a, a mix uh, at the moment. But I think the idea is that we've spent a lot, lot of time trying to organically kind of combine market history and data science. Um, and so over time, I think people like that, we have a little bit of a handle on both. Um, and then seeing the kind of cross-section uh, can spit out some really interesting um, ideas, right? You know, even recently, obviously, you, you know, you, you're on the work, you see a lot of stuff, right? Where you see, um, say, the Japanese insurance, right? That's like an equity play. But implicitly, it's also a play on the BOJ, right? You know, your models led you, a lot of the kind of single stock, longer term models led you to that that investment theme, you know, a year and a half ago, a year ago, right? And that's when you first get interested. But then understanding kind of that the BOJ is a very unique kind of mm. human overlay and that, you know, inflation LEIs are through the roof and it's coming, then that that gives you more of a kind of conviction or catalyst, right? For that kind of um trade. So, you know, that would be mm. like the example. Yeah, okay. So let's dig a little bit deeper then into the type of models you guys run, right? So you, I think you're quite unique in that you've got tactical trading models that kind of help people time the market in the, in the short term. And you've also got much big picture, structural, demographic, cycle-based models. So do you want to tell us a bit about those, maybe starting with the, the tactical stuff? Uh, yeah, so I think how I think about it is that there's essentially like two things you're trying to do when you're investing or trading, right? Like the first one is trying to think about what will happen. And then you need to kind of play the game a little bit, understanding what's priced in, you know, if for you to make money, who's losing money on the other side. So that's kind of like two distinct things. Um, the the longer term cycle, capital cycle structural models, that's that's a lot more about trying to think about what will happen, right? There's a specific sequence in which uh, the economy usually operates. You know, certain sectors will always be leading and certain sectors always lagging, right? So, you know, like the classic example we, we always give is, you know, before you build a house, you need to get a building permit in most places. Mm -hmm. right? So the building permit data almost has to turn before the construction activity data picks up. And so you have a lot of these kind of leading lagging relationships, just like in the long run, um, ultimately for capitalism to even operate, money has to go from the lowest marginal return to the highest marginal return, right? But it, these things tend to take time, but they tend to be uh, either persistent tailwind or persistent headwind. So those are trying to understand a little bit more about the sequencing and what will happen. Um, the tactical piece in my mind is much more about just trying to play the game, right? Because obviously there's, you know, there's lots of different sources of edge and alpha people trying to take out the market. So for us, it's just trying to model a little bit how different participants are behaving and understanding, you know, how, how people are positioned so that in theory, you, you can have that kind of playing the game edge on top of the uh, kind of what will happen, right? So you're essentially looking for the, you know, you use your longer term models to understand what will happen. And then you let the tactical tell you when people are positioned against it. And hopefully that creates a bit more um, kind of a symmetry 
uh, so that you can either put investments or structure trades around it that in theory should have have some edge uh, that pays off. Mm-hmm. Are you using the tactical models to get into the longer term views or is it a case of you can go against those longer term views if the tactical models tell you to? Uh, I think for us and most of our clients and how we invest, like I think our time horizon is probably a bit more elongated. So I don't think we're really doing a lot intraday or even daily. So for mm-hmm. us, it's a lot more about tracking the longer term themes and helping to, one is obviously get in and out, but two, just helping a little bit with sizing or you know position management, right? You, the tactical is kind of a way to prioritize a lot of these ongoing longer term themes. But when a particular one gets too crowded, uh, then you know it, it might be a good time to take some off or add some on, overlay some you know options and stuff, stuff, stuff like that. So, in mm-hmm. in terms of the use case for us, that's how we use it. But we do have some uh, more active kind of trading clients who actually you know have a, built up a lot of experience over time. And I think for them, sometimes it's nice to have a to have it as a uh, like a slight data model check, right? Like LPPL being a classic example. I think a lot of traders have really really good feel for kind of when things are getting stretched, right? When there's a capitulation kind of move and they mm-hmm. like the fact that, oh, you can kind of confirm a little bit here and it helps them so that, you know, when you get your, you know, uh, you know, you get a doji or like a shooting star or whatever. And then, you know, that's their normal entry. Having this on top, they're like, oh, they have some conviction on top. Let's, and it, let's like, explain Let's explain for the people who haven't heard of your LPPL model before what it, what it, what it means, what it stands for and, and what it's trying to capture. Uh, yeah, so LPPL stands for Log Periodic Power Law. Um, you know, okay. we didn't we we didn't invent this, right? It's been around for quite a long time. Um, it's used in academia, uh, quite a lot, and and it's been found in like lots of different kind of fields of study, biology, uh, all sorts, right? Like we came across it because um, you know, it was being used in in kind of various social uh, studies, and Didier Sonnet kind of helped to really popularize the idea. Um, so the the theory. Is um if you think about it, it's basically like a, a wave shape where for each kind of oscillation of the wave, it tends to speed up and the magnitude tends to kind of get bigger, right? Mm-hmm. So intuitively, if you think about like a market that's really starting to move, um, say say it's going up, right? And people being caught short offside, they get they get increasingly more and more desperate to cover their shorts. So on each cycle, they cover quicker and a higher price, and you end up with a kind of exhaustion kind of pattern right so there's a couple of ways to get the intuition for it mm-hmm. um so i think the the lppi itself the, the the theory is very sound but like putting it into practice is actually extremely difficult so the the kind of model itself has kind of also gone through its kind of um its own kind of hype cycle you know in the gartner sense of you know obviously we're in like a massive ai hype cycle right now right and we've gone through mm-hmm. various iterations so i think did it did it on that put out a book called uh, why stock markets crash Mm-hmm. I think in the early 2010s, that got a lot of publicity. I think that probably marked the peak hype <laughs> in kind of kind of LPPL. Uh, and then, you know, lots of people tried it, but found it, it wasn't very easy to, to implement. And so I think we're probably through that valley of disillusionment now. And, you know, I think we're getting some good usage uh, um, out mm-hmm. of it. Essentially, it's a very unstable model when you first look at it. So the, the practical aspects are all about how to make it more stable and to train it to be um uh yeah to, to essentially pick out the correct kind of crash patterns versus other ones right so so that's mm-hmm. a little bit what, what it's gone through but if you think about it at heart it's an attempt to try and understand the end of a trend 
Yeah, I guess if you marry it with other things that people use, like you say, technical indicators, maybe DeMarc signals, things like that that are commonly used with quite a lot of success to pick turning points and you're getting lots of multiple yeah. things telling you the same story, then then your conviction probably goes up, I guess, right? Yeah, I mean, DeMarc is really interesting because it's, I think DeMarc 13 counts, so, so the, the proper four, right? The countdown, the, the setup and the countdown DeMarc. Yeah, it's, it's quite amazing how... A lot of times with the Mark 13 count, if it lines up with the LPPL climax, it was a really compelling entry points. Mm-hmm. I think we found the mark there tends to be a bit more 13 counts on the marks on the dailies uh, versus the LPPL climaxes. But yeah, it, I think it's it's obviously trying to get at a similar idea. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely been tracking your LPPL signals recently, and you've you've done some you've done some you've made some great calls recently, right? I mean, the hard part I find though is whilst you might pick a turn. It's the exit point, right? It's like, how long is that turn going to persist? Is it just a dead cat bounce that it manages to pick out? Or is it a major turning point, right? And these are where the trading side and the risk management comes in so that you don't get too badly hurt if it doesn't turn into a material move, right? Yeah, yeah, that definitely. Because if you look at like the, the stylized LPPL climax examples, whether it's a bubble or a bottom, actually it's, it's say like, it's roughly, right? It might be half the time you get like the V-shape and you get it instantly working. But actually half the time, it's probably more like just the sideways, volatile sideways price action. So there's, mm-hmm. it's definitely important to bear in mind that kind of base case for trading. And obviously for LPPL generically, there's obviously a base case expectation for the forward range, right? So so to the extent, yeah, you get immediate reaction, like a extended deviation, even like two, three standard deviation daily move quickly, then it's normally a sign something's a bit weird. It might be a V, but it could bounce back. So mm. I think in my mind, knowing that base case does help that. Yeah, if it moves quickly, you generally do want to probably take a take a bit off, right? Or take least, some chips yeah. off the table, yeah. Yeah, yeah or, or do a cut. Yeah, flip to like an option structure on if you have the delta on, right? Something like that. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. And then you've got a crowding model that you've recently been putting out. I've seen it on social media quite a lot. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Uh, yeah, so I think we've worked on numerous iterations of crowding um, kind of over time. Um, so for us, um, you know, we, we kind of do a bit of everything, right? Essentially, like the way we operate is we just spend a lot of time thinking, reading about history and then trying to build models. But obviously, once the model's built, we want it to last, right? But mm-hmm. it's generally hard because alpha will decay over time. Any model from the moment you implement it, slowly the alpha will start decaying. So mm-hmm. a lot of times we're trying to just um, kind of think very first principles at understanding aspects of the market. And hopefully if you have uh, the first principles correct, then your model efficacy can persist for longer. So the crowding, this latest version is like, a, a, you know, yeah, another iteration. But by our heart, the basic idea is that crowding is firmly in the, the playing the game bucket of analysis, right? So you need to understand how all different participants are position the problem with almost all like widely available positioning data is 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 usually quite delayed right you know whether it's like cot futures have a you know like a week uh delay right a lot of the flow data might be a month's delay some might be even longer or position data is um surveys right so you don't actually see the real numbers so i think a lot of times what we're trying to think about is what's actually the inferred kind of visible um kind of market observations if something's crowded or not. So on crowding, we're not necessarily trying to overfit our measure to maximize the theoretical alpha 
what we're actually doing is saying if a position is very crowded, it's actually in the tails, you should see it, right? So it's more about this. So it's more about if a name is crowded, if the say it's the equity and the stock goes and, and the stock is um uncrowded, but the market goes up, then it should go up more, right? If with the general index. But if it's uncrowded and the index goes down, it should go down less, right? So there should be a a difference in terms of what we you know we call it quadratic beta, right? So you have a normal beta, and you have a quadratic beta. So you should have an upward bias on the tails, right? Similarly, in terms of upside downside volatility, if a name is very uncrowded, there should be more upside volatility than downside, right? On on average, as the expectation. Uh, similarly, if if a name is uncrowded, you get positive earnings surprise. It should obviously go up more than uh, it would if it was a crowded name. So those are kind of the objective functions we're trying to optimize for rather than alpha um, necessarily. So I think that's what, uh, so the latest version, I think we've, we've got access to a bit more models than the first time we started doing crowding. Um, you know, we, we have our own kind of speculative versus patient money proxies now, so we can understand a bit more what speculators are doing versus kind of more real money patient guys. So I think that's helping uh, uh, kind of this version. But yeah, essentially it's just trying to understand which are the areas of the market where the the kind of tails are a bit more skewed. And I think intuitively that makes that that to us is what kind of crowding actually means. Mm, interesting. Yeah. You get exaggerated moves on extreme outcomes, basically, right? Because everyone has to get out at the same time because yeah. they've all got the wrong position, right? That's kind of sexy. Yeah, because you know, you have times where a crowded name makes money, right? Because if everyone's crowded into something, but you know, the 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 what will happen is correct, then you should get paid out, right? Like everyone can be short bonds in 2022, but if the Fed keeps hiking, everybody makes money. Mm, right? so, mm. so that's why, um, you know, we didn't necessarily want to just fit to the theoretical backtest performance, but it's about what the behavior is, right? It's more like if you get an adverse event against the crowding, you really need to see that kind of tail payoff. And also that's it needs to, yeah, it also uh, shouldn't really have very high correlation to, kind of the price, right? Or, you know, standard technical indicators like RSI or any of these, right? Because obviously if you end up building a model where your correlation is like 90% plus to RSI or price, then the marginal information isn't that high, right? You can see the prices down. So yeah. I think that yeah. was like another test case um, where there's a lot of stocks we've tracked just personally having lived through the, the, the kind of experience of owning it where we're like, okay, you know, intuitively there should be periods when the crowding have nothing to do with the price and there are periods obviously when it's correlated. So those are some of the, the kind of task cases. It's interesting. I think I think it would be very informative for an option trader on a name as well, because if if there is that crowding, then you're essentially you can say that the tail might be a bit mispriced versus that level of crowding. So like the skew might be too cheap or too expensive based on that 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 crowding. So you could fade that in option space, and and then there might be some edge to extract from that basically. Right. Uh, yeah, that that's a that's like a, a one exact use case, right? So we have um option guys who that's precisely what they're using it for heading into earnings, right? So the process is obviously understanding what companies have earnings coming up, having mm -hmm. a look at where crowding is extreme. Obviously, you may or may not have edge in predicting the direction of the earnings surprise, but obviously in theory, if it's not, especially like you know, depending on the the kind of vol surface of the time, right? In principle, there should be uh over time this should extract uh th that kind of uh, tail risk, right? That that's kind of how how it's being used, actually. Interesting. All right, and then what about the the um? So the capital cycle is one of your main 
ways you look at it on a on a on a longer term macro basis, right? Can you elaborate a bit on the capital cycle, like the type of stuff you look at to identify that? Uh yeah. So again, the capital cycle, you know, we didn't invent it. Like it's it's probably most prominently associated with marathon asset management. Uh Ed Chancellor wrote a very popular book um on on marathon and capital cycles. Um and um so so that's kind of where where the I think where it got popularized. Uh, within the investing kind of world. Um, at heart, the capital cycle is actually about competition. So if you have certain industries or regions that are really, you know, loved, you know, sexy and tons of money is flowing into it, if too much money flows into a, a particular area, then on a structural kind of three-year forward basis, it will obviously compete away profits, right, over time and you and, and vice versa. So if an area is really hated, there's just no money going in, then by definition, almost the, the marginal uh, ROIC is, is, is potentially quite high if it ever turns around, right? And so there's a potential for kind of excess profits for that industry over time. So it's really about um, the, the the steady and slow flow of money from hot areas to hated areas over time as mm -hmm. money seeks out the highest rate of return within essentially a, a market economy, right? So that's kind of the, at heart the idea. Um, so for the most part, I think I still think it works. Obviously, now that we're living in a world where there's increasingly more um, regulations or government interventions, right? There's obviously some mm. limits on on kind of this, but broadly, I think it's still for now still working. So that that's kind of the idea. So we're just tracking, you know, for us, I think we have about four hundred different global region industries um, that we are looking at at this on. Um, so you know, mostly it's about understanding capex. R&D spend relative to asset base. You know, it's about understanding kind of the marginal ROIC for the industry as a whole uh, and understanding if the asset base is growing or, or being drawn down. So that's kind of um, the idea. We, we generally try and build it bottom up. So we build it for both private and public companies to the extent the data is available and aggregate up. So you have a, a kind of cleaner feel um, for, for, for the kind of, um, for these kind of dynamics. So, so what uh what are the so what is the capital cycle saying is hot right now or not so hot? So so hot on cap cycle would be bad. So hated yeah. would be good. So hated okay. are the ones we probably pay a lot of attention to. So you know Latin America has been persistently uh, capital scarce for quite a while. So you know structurally we've always been looking at uh, Latin America as an area, right? And and again this is another example of kind of you know man plus machine hopefully be man or machine alone, right? If I talk to you about LATAM, if you think back maybe 20 years ago, you know, there's probably a lot more LATAM funds, a lot of LATAM PMs, uh, uh, hedge mm -hmm. funds, like there's there's very few left, right? So mm -hmm. so in a way, there's, you know, this is a little bit like the commodity capital scarcity, commodity super cycle in 2019, 2018, 2020, right? When all the commodity funds were shutting down, there were, you know, commodity PMs, energy an analysts getting fired. So like there's also a kind of confirmation around it. So right now, I think Latin is very interesting. Uh, Japan, obviously, Japan's you know it's it's kind of ongoing thing. So Japanese equities, there it still remains very uh, capital scarce area uh, mm -hmm. within sectors. Energy still because obviously there's ESG constraints or various things that prevent um, too much capital being deployed into the sector. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of uh, capital abundant, you know, obvious examples things like um like media entertainment so we're talking you know streaming wars those kind of thing right netflix disney everyone's obviously burning money uh right now to compete so that's been a, a pretty capital abundant sector for a while um mm -hmm. uh what else yeah i mean that, that hopefully gives you a feel right yeah 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 no, that makes that makes sense for sure
Um, oh, I guess the interesting, I guess, now I, I understand a little bit. I guess what you're trying to hint at is you ask, because obviously with AI, with like semis, the, the okay. question is that, is it actually capital scarce or abundant, right? And so I think this is really interesting where semis are rarely actually capital abundant on our models, even throughout the past decades, even as so much money is poured into it. And mm-hmm. the main reason is that even though tons of money has gone in, uh, the marginal ROIC for the industry has been very good. So that's actually being a, a very key input to kind of um, tell you that there's a secular shift going on, right? Because if you just do like a very um, kind of surface level implementation of capital cycle, the danger is um, you'll miss secular winners and be stuck in value traps, right? So like, you know, if like an industry is dying, like, you know, paper, you know, newspapers back in the day or like different things like that, actually, even though there's no investment, there's mm-hmm. no traction between demand and supply until the supply is truly being like destroyed enough. And mm-hmm. so that's why having a marginal RIC component is really, really important on top of the, the kind of all the other kind of uh, capital expenditure R&D flow measures because it tells you when you're getting traction. I see. So so it's like the marginal, so that's return on invested capital, right? So yeah. the marginal return on invested capital is effectively confirming whether or not there is capital scarcity or or abundance because if in AI, for example, everyone's throwing cash at AI, but they're managing to have an ROI that's okay, then you're not so concerned that it's in a bad spot, basically. That like, it's almost another form of crowding, right? I guess. Uh, well, yeah, but obviously, uh, well, in my mind, I think it's more about the actual underlying business performance. So, um, I guess in my mind, I'm thinking less AI, but more like just semis as a whole, right? So, obviously, you're including TSMC, you're including more of the, yeah, you know, these kind of companies in there. Where essentially, I don't think it's very extreme on capital scarcity or abundance, mainly because even though hundreds of billions in aggregate are being plowed in every year. The marginal mm-hmm. IRC has been consistently good, right? Because obviously this is a massive secular tailwind. So at some point, I'm sure it'll turn, but obviously these models are fairly slow moving. So I think it might mm-hmm. take a little bit of time to catch up, even if it's um it's there. Interesting. Okay. Um, and then another thing you guys do on the macro side really well is, you, you know, you're always, you're figuring out lead indicators, right? You're very focused on things that lead. So how do you go about identifying these lead indicators? How do you kind of come up with your ideas as to what, because you're a bit more out of the box, I think, than, than a lot of macro guys, right, in terms of what you look at. So can you give us some feel for your thought process there? Uh, yeah, so again, it's kind of going back to man plus machine, right? Obviously we have, you know, you can obviously start off by data mining for anything that has a lead lag in terms of turning points. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we tend to transform all the data to really exaggerate turning points. So that we're generally trying to pick up on correlations between turning points, right? That's the initial kind of way to understand uh, if, if data is available. Uh, but we normally need to have the data going back at least the full business cycle. So call it on average seven to 10 years history. So you understand it through, you know, some big downturns and upturns. Um, and then obviously you need it to be intuitive and explainable because obviously there's like a, a gazillion correlations you can find. And this is obviously going back to the issue with potentially even LLM models and, and all these things, right? Because obviously, ultimately, it's a it's like a correlation uh, thing at the end of the day. So um, once you have the initial kind of shortlist, then we need to understand if it's intuitive. So, you know, building permits, if you find building permits are leading, that's obviously pretty intuitive, right? Mm. Um, so there's a lot of theoretically leading lagging things. So 
I, th I think leading the case is obviously a lot more well known these days compared to maybe 10 years ago. But yeah, you know, things like unemployment is very lagging, right? Because no business owner is going to go out and fire their workers at the first sign of trouble, right? They're really going to, they, they cut their variable costs until eventually the business cycle downturn is so bad, there's no choice left and they have to lay off their workers and, and unemployment picks up, right? Similarly, like normally, um, like bankruptcies and delinquencies tend to be more of a lagging indicator. So it's normally things are already so bad that by the time these things are really surging in the headlines, those are quite lagging. Mm. Um, so uh, what are the examples of leads? I mean, typically high yield credit spreads historically have been a good lead indicator because obviously it's a sign of financing conditions. Um, you know, the ratio of new orders to inventories, these are very classic kind of um, lead indicators. Is there any that you've got that you just, you wouldn't think of that as that obvious, but you've actually found them to be really, really useful? Mm. Uh, yeah, so so one is I think you so so in macro most of the data is actually pretty highly correlated, right? So there's a basically like a, a collinearity problem. So if you try and take a bunch of macro data and reduce the dimensions, typically like the first three dimensions explain like seventy percent of the moves, right? So like you know if you throw like if you have like twenty thirty inputs, the the the, the you know you're just giving yourself a false sense of security and overfitting. So in that sense, it's not so much about um, like there's there's some magic secret leading indicator. I think it's just understanding a lot of them are going to be correlated because they're picking up on similar themes. And then it's just thinking about what is more sensitive and more leading. So, you know, an obvious example would be South Korea is very uh, exposed to global trade, right? It's a big exporter. It's, it was sensitive to China, but through semis, it's sensitive to other things, right? So South Korea and Taiwan inventories tend to be more of a lead even for, you know, uh, like, other countries like in Europe, right? Even though you wouldn't think so. Similarly, mm -hmm. Sweden is a smaller, more open economy, right? Uh, you know, they obviously got housing, but right, race sensitive. So they tend to be more, more leading. So there's a bunch of these kind of things that will spit out that on first thought, you might be like South Korea is not directly linked to Europe, right? But, mm -hmm. you know, if Europe is Germany, Germany's dependent on China, South Korea leads China, then you, you get some of these Right. relationships that 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 spit out so yeah okay. those are, are probably examples that again are pretty intuitive um and and you tend to observe the kind of sequencing of the of the turning points mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay yeah great um and um so you keep mentioning man versus machine right so the the human discretionary component is that something that you leave your clients to sort out for themselves and you give them the machine and the tools and the models, and then they then go and use their own discretion to kind of navigate markets and use those tools the best way they see fit? Or do you actually add a layer of that humanness on top for yourselves? Well, I, I think the client can decide. If the client just wants the model, they can obviously just get the model. Obviously, when we put out research, that has our overlay right. implicitly. And ultimately, when we're investing using, using our, our models and tools, there's ultimately uh obviously a layer of discretion right at the end right so like even this year a classic example was um if you think back to the s post just post svb there was a bank run on first republic right so first mm -hmm. republic has historically like scored super well on quant models in terms of business quality like people love that business you know they have very good roe it was known for customer service etc cetera, etc cetera, right so mm -hmm. during that initial start of the bank run most of the models would be is pushing this in terms of, you know, we cover like 14,000 stocks, right? It's basically going to like number one, right? But 
that's where you need to understand like you know the dimensions of a a bank run and what's actually going on suggests you probably should ignore it now obviously in that case it worked out but sometimes you know it might turn but those examples where you're like you know that there's clearly something mm-hmm. exogenous going on that the, the 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 model was not designed to kind but, of happen. yeah there's a fat tail that the model isn't aware of basically right so that's where your human discretion says that fat tail is something I don't want to be involved in or take take yeah. the other side of basically. So even if I miss the upside because the model nailed it, I'd rather miss the upside so I don't have to take the negative tail event risk that this thing can really go pear shaped, right? Uh, yeah, and and obviously you also want some intuition that the model is behaving as intended, right? Because in a way, when we talk about man plus machine, you know, when we talk about market history, it's essentially you're trying to understand how the world actually works from a first principles point of view. And then your model needs to actually behave according to that, right? So when you have times when the model behaves against it, then you have some discretion to kind of turn it off, right? Just like, obviously, you know, you look a lot at option market stuff, you know, I remember asking you a lot of very practical questions, right? Like when you actually implement, like who is actually going out there and putting on like call flights, put flights, not many people, right? In practice, mm-hmm. it's like, it's like a theoretical thing. People might think it's really cute on paper. In fact, it's not many people's trying to do like a bunch of these fancy five-legged trades, right? And that's like example, I would say, in the real world, how does it work versus the theory? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a lot of what we're trying to spend time on uh, understanding, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've always been a big fan of like, yeah, do the number crunching, try and be systematic in your process, but then make sure you understand the intuition behind everything, right? Like try and understand what's going on under the hood. And when the model does break away from what you think is happening in the world, you can try to rationalize that and question that. Because like I said, every model is going to break at some point, right? Every model has to have some assumptions embedded in it. So by definition, they're going to fail at some point. It's just, you need to be aware enough to not rely on them so blindly that you can't catch it when that happens, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, and then, so what's your sort of future plans, though, at, at Variant Perception then? Like, you guys, obviously, you do put out amazing macro research. Are you are you changing? Are you evolving? Like, what, what are your plans? Uh, yeah, well, I think, you know, I think despite the, the the quite difficult, I guess, broader business environment, I think we're doing pretty well at the moment. Um, I think our unique edge is probably more on, you know, doing the R&D building models and making the tools. So I think that's probably the primary direction that we're going in. But obviously these things naturally translate to obviously data products, right? The models are there, it translates to a um, kind of different different paths. But yeah, I think, you know, it's important to understand probably what your ultimate kind of edge and value is, right? And I think for us, it's about, yeah, being able to do this man plus machine, effectively be like a, like a overlay but you know that can cover everything. Maybe we're just eighty percent of you know single stocks, eighty percent of all trading, eighty percent of uh, you know macro, eighty percent whatever else. But you know I think we've accumulated a bunch of these models over time, so it's quite a nice um, kind of check that's kind of instantly available uh, for clients via the via our portal, right? So that that's kind of in my mind uh, where 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 we fit right now. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see what what happens in the future. Well, mate, well, it's been great having you. And and one thing I want to ask you before you go, which I think it will benefit the listeners, because you're so well read. Like you said, that is part of your actual process at VP to like figure out where you're going to go. You you read so much. You you're a student of history. So, what 
would you say the top three books for someone who's trying to understand the world, markets? Like, what are the top three books that you would recommend for people to read? Because I think out of all the people I've interviewed, you're definitely one of the people that I think that's a good question to ask too. Yeah. Um, Put you on I, yeah, obviously, I, I can't really speak for you know, other people in terms of stage. I can just tell you three books I remember that had a, a foundational impact on me that caused me yeah. to change how I, how I did things. So the first one I always say is um, The Volatility Machine by Michael Pettis. Right. That's I think it's pretty old now. I remember asking him before if he's going to do like a reprint. But I think some of the, the case study examples are really are, are kind of like decades ago, I think, at this point. But yeah, that was like a foundational thing for, for, for me because like it showed a lot of practical, um, like real world experience of investing, inverted balance sheets and all these things. So that, I think that was really foundational. Mm -hmm. um, the other one is uh, the uh, expected returns. I think there's a new version that's that's come out, right? Like I think new versions called like expected returns in, in like a low rate world or, or something. I can't remember the name, but yeah, that that that's quite a that's a bit more academic, but it gives you a good sense of um, the different sources of premium, you know, liquidity premium, vol premium, and so forth. So in terms of understanding intuitively first principles, what are the things you should be doing that you should actually have positive expected payoffs over time. Mm -hmm. um i mean th that was really good but those books are probably not the most accessible i would say you probably need a little bit of background um in terms of things that are a bit more accessible uh you know joel greenblatt's books are really good like uh you know how to be a stock market genius um you know i think it's like called the little magic book right i, I think that that was pretty good obviously capital returns i mentioned by a chancellor those are i think those books are really really you know, I remember reading and thinking, okay, I'm going to go try this. And then, you, and then that takes you down kind of the rabbit hole kind of thing. So mm -hmm. yeah, those are probably, probably the main ones that, uh, that come to mind. All right. Very good. That gives some people something to get the teeth. Well, what's your one, by the way, have, have you given out your book list? You know, I haven't because I, I've historically been a terrible reader over the years. So I'm good at sort of learning by doing and you know, I remember when I first started options, I, I tried to read whole, gave up after about a chapter started reading Sheldon Natenberg, which everyone calls the Bible, thought it was relatively good, but probably still didn't get through it. So I'm one of those people who does generally learn by doing it. And in the new age of podcasts and YouTube videos and stuff, I've just, I didn't cultivate, I'm trying to change that now. I didn't cultivate a very good habit of reading. Um, so now I've, I've bought like like 10 books in the last month and I'm, I'm trying to change, but historically that's not something I've, I've, I've done well. Like, in terms of market, market wizards, I read. I really like that. That resonated a lot, and it's because of the practical experience of all these market legends that you can learn from. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't say anything was that life changing for me in terms of that really sticks out. Yeah, uh, I wish I know at the time. I remember on my internship, you made everyone read Nate, uh, Nathan Buck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I hadn't even read it cover to cover myself. That's quite funny. Uh, but you know what? The point is, you know, you want to point people in the right directions, and then they find their own way, right? So just like I found my way, you found your way, but you, you kind of need to be steered in that direction, right? So, and that's what we're doing here, Options Insights, still, right? Like, I don't claim to know everything about everything. I'm still learning daily from the market, and if you don't, if you if you don't have the kind of perspective that the market is going to keep teaching you and it is going to keep changing and you don't know it all, then you're going to learn a very harsh, harsh, harsh lesson one day 
when the, when the market uh, reminds you of that. So uh, that, that's kind of what I try to teach. But anyway, mate, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Um, it was good to finally get this done. I know we've been intending to do it for a while. I hope the viewers enjoyed it and, and got a lot from it. And uh, all the best over there at VP. Um, and I'm going to keep reading your research very keenly, uh, especially the short-term trading signals that I can do option trades around. Uh, but yeah, thanks a lot, man. Yeah, Take no, th th thanks to you. Same to you. Yeah, thank you. Cheers.